Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I hope you not only survived, but enjoyed last week's marathon dive into the Isaiah chapters of the Book of Mormon. I know those were long lessons, and you're welcome to some of you, and I'm sorry to others of you. I know I can't please everyone, and I wish that I could, but I finally resigned myself to my fate, realizing that, man, despite the insanity of it all, I can't I can't leave a stone unturned. I, I can't leave a scripture unintroduced. And so I think I'm finally resigned to the reality that I'm, I'm going to be going verse by verse until we catch back up uh, to where we started four years ago yeah, at the end of Jacob. So the next few weeks, there'll be longer lessons and then we'll cut down drastically uh, with old material still available to those who want the deep dive. It's been interesting. Uh, in the same week, I was called a liar for keeping things longer when I had said I'd make them shorter. And I was told I was listening to the devil for trying to shorten these things at all. So yeah, you can't please everyone. I, I wish that I could be all things to all people so that by all means, I might be the means of saving some, to paraphrase Paul. But in the meantime, I am grateful for the time that we spend, long or short, in scripture together. I pray it's a blessing to you and I know it's a blessing to me. So thank you for, for allowing us to study together. Now, uh, one other thing I wanted to give you a heads up about is this weekend I'm going to be posting a special episode of Unshaken that's going to be a recording of a presentation I gave at BYU last month uh, that I f feel is one of the most important things I've taught in a long, long time. Uh, it's, it was filmed and posted on, on YouTube by BYU, but it was in a large auditorium. The sound was absolutely horrific. So I asked them if I could uh, have a copy and post it myself. And with the help of some audio wizards out there, uh, try to make it so it was actually palatable to the ear. And I will post that this weekend. And I, honestly, I'm, in, I'm inviting you to share this with people who need it. I would love for this message. Uh, I feel so strongly about it, of how do we balance the first great commandment and the second great commandment? How do we balance the love of God with love of our neighbors? And how do we arrive at Zion where we're one heart and one mind and dwelling together in righteousness with no poor among us? There's some proving of contraries in that talk uh, that I think are absolutely essential. And some things I've really been wrestling with from Third Nephi, trying to understand from Jesus himself how we're going to pull this off. So when it comes out uh, this weekend, I hope that it will be a blessing to you and a blessing to anyone with whom you share it. Uh, also, that's a, a preview of other coming attractions that once I am able to slow down, uh, shorten things and, and delegate some of the post-production things to friends at Faith Matters, uh, I do want to film some more things that are specifically directed at faith crisis issues. And so if you haven't already subscribed to this channel, now would be a good time so that you make sure that you don't miss any of those things coming up. There's a little bell button that you can click also on the YouTube versions that will give you notifications. And that's way, that way, if we're doing something beyond the normal weekly scripture study lesson from Come Follow Me, uh, you won't miss any of those when they, when they get posted also. Anyway, uh, with that, let's get back into Isaiah. Okay, we, we ended on a cliffhanger last week, to be honest. Because if you recall, our chapter breaks are later inventions. Isaiah didn't give those kinds of chapter breaks. And in fact, Nephi didn't give the same ones we use. And neither did Joseph Smith when it was originally translated and published in 1830. As we saw last time, Nephi gives us three large Isaiah chapters. And for the first one, he took Isaiah 2, 3, 4, 5 and gave us one chapter of that. 
He then pivoted and gave us a second chapter of Isaiah, which in our book is Isaiah 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then a very short third chapter of Isaiah, which in our book is Isaiah 13 and 14. So Isaiah 2 through 14 in three bigger chunks. Uh, and in our, in our version, in the Book of Mormon, that's 2 Nephi 12 through 24. And that means where we stopped last week was not just in between uh, 2 Nephi 19 and 20. It was right in the middle of Nephi's second Isaiah chapter. So yes, a cliffhanger. In fact, speaking of cliffhangers, I was picturing in my mind those intrepid climbers that camp on the sheer face of a cliff wall. If they're hiking, if they're trying to climb straight up, like El Capitan, for example, or, or Half Dome, and they want to camp for the night, and they clip into some anchor bolt, and their tent, quote-unquote, is almost like a hammock hanging from the bolt with thousands of feet of sheer space, <laughs> of just air beneath you, uh, I don't know how well I'd sleep. And so I don't know how well you've slept over the past week as we are hanging on Isaiah's next word. Uh, we got to the end of chapter 19, and to this point, we have learned about oh, the destruction that awaits them because of their wickedness. There's uh, Isaiah warning them and crying repentance. We've seen the promise that God will be whittling down the wicked until there is nothing but a righteous remnant remaining. But with that righteous remnant, that's the leaven with which he will leaven the lump. Uh, in a latter day where there will be a gathering of scattered Israel, all through a marvelous work and a wonder that God himself will perform, with some help uh, down below. But to think of our, that, that, that cliffhanger moment, like where do we go from here? Uh, there's the, there's the, the righteous remnant remaining, but when will they return? How will they return? What will the, the gathering be like? And will we finally win this war between good and evil? Those are the things that, those questions are waiting to be answered in this week's material. And there's incredible things that we've already studied and yet incredible things that lie ahead. I'll also say that at, like we saw last week that 2 Nephi 11 was the pump up speech, the motivation before the quotation. Well, after the quotation comes the explanation. And Nephi will begin giving us that this week in 2 Nephi 25. It's an absolutely essential chapter to make sense of all the Isaiah chapters that Nephi quotes leading up to it, but also to prepare us for what Nephi is going to say from there till the end of his record, uh, 2 Nephi 33. And so please endure to the end of this week's lesson. And if you don't have time and can only squeeze in an, an hour or so, I would actually fast forward to the, sec to the end of the second part of this week's lesson so that you understand 2 Nephi 25 particularly the way it ends, about grace and law and how those two work together. That's essential doctrine for us to understand from the Book of Mormon. So I, I would hate to miss anything, but if you have to fast forward through some of Isaiah to get to Nephi's explanation of it and his preparation for what he's going to teach us from here on out, 2 Nephi 25 is a must read, a must study, okay? and a must scuba dive. Okay? We're going to need to spend some good time there. Now, uh, to, to give us the necessary momentum to, divide, to dive into this week's material, let's quickly review the three names of children that we learned last week. Two of them were literal names of Isaiah's literal sons, and then the third was a, a name title that would apply, oh, centuries later. 
But the first one was his son, Sheir Yashub, which means a remnant shall return. Anytime you hear remnant in scripture, you got to think about scattered Israel with the promise of gathered Israel when all is said and done. So here's visual aid, object lesson number one, my son. That's how confident I am that a remnant shall return. I named my kid that, okay? Imagine how he's going to get made fun of in junior high. Now, if that's bad, the next one's even harder. Next son was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed to the spoil or hasten the prey or destruction is imminent because that was part of the warning that Isaiah was giving as well. Uh, Sheir Yashu had a more reassuring name. The remnant shall return. Maharshalal Hashbaz had more of the cautionary name. You got to be ready for what's coming because it's coming quick. And there's the Assyrian Empire ready to bear down on you and scatter the north and almost destroy the south, just depending on how prepared they are for what's on its way. And then the third name was Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And that would be his title, which means God with us. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of that was the coming of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And yet to have that reassurance that despite the fact that the, the spoil is, being, is about to be preyed upon and that destruction is imminent, the remnant shall return because God is with us and will remain with us through it all. Hold on to those promises as we move forward from there. Now, as we shift from chapter 19 to chapter 20, then, we are going to see the last three modern chapters of what, uh, I, what Nephi gives us in his second Isaiah chapter, and then those last two chapters that constituted his final chapter of Isaiah. And honestly, for this one, I think diving first into the chapter headings would be a good way to begin. Uh, it's a helpful summary of what's there, and by seeing it in brief, I think you'll notice some similarities between these last two parts that we're going to be studying from Isaiah. Here's the chapter heading we see in 2 Nephi chapter 20. The destruction of Assyria is a type, that is a foreshadowing. Okay, here's the type, then we're going to see an anti-type. This is a preview of coming attractions, or in this case, a preview of coming destructions. The destruction of Assyria is a type of the destruction of the wicked at the second coming. Few people will be left after the Lord comes again. There's whittling down the wicked for a righteous remnant. And sure enough, the remnant of Jacob will return in that day. There you see the scattering and the gathering all summed up in this one chapter. From there, chapter 21, the stem of Jesse, that's Christ, will judge in righteousness. The knowledge of God will cover the earth in the millennium, the Lord will raise an ensign and gather Israel. So again, there, clearly laid out, is another chapter on gathering. But this is more of a millennial reign kind of context after the coming of Christ. Followed by chapter 22, in the millennial day, all men will praise the Lord. He will dwell among them. So are we seeing some future history, a.k.a. prophecy, unfold in those three chapters? The destruction of, the, of Assyria is going to be a preview of the destruction at the end of the world. There you see Armageddon in advance. And then the coming of Christ and the millennial reign. We've seen how the, the, this story ends. You remember back in 1 Nephi where Nephi is describing the last days. Well, he walks through New Testament history, Book of Mormon history, apostasy and restoration history, last days history. And right before he's getting to the end of it all, the Lord says, yeah, actually, why don't you pass the baton to... John the Revelator. 
And the book of Revelation will describe the rest. And I wonder if Nephi was a little saddened by that. Like, really? I had to go to, to, to I had to pass the baton to someone else right at the, the climax of it all? Well, in some ways, he sneaks in a second climax when he gets to the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. And he's going to use what Isaiah prophesied of the more impending future, Assyria, and its destruction, to prepare us for what we're going to be living through in the last days, uh, our Armageddon, second coming, millennial reign. And just in case you missed it, the first round, with Assyria as your example, he then gives it to us a second round using Babylon as the example. So look at the chapter heading of chapter 23. It should ring some bells from what we saw in the chapter heading of chapter 20. In 23 it says, the destruction of Babylon is a type of the destruction at the second coming. That's exactly what was said in chapter 20. You just sub out Assyria for Babylon. Okay. Keep reading. It will be a day of wrath and vengeance. Sounds like end of the world, Armageddon. But Babylon, the world that is, will fall forever. Leading to chapter 24, where Israel will be gathered and will enjoy millennial rest. Lucifer was cast out of heaven for rebellion. We'll get to that and explain why that, like, well, there's a flashback. Well, it's also a flash forward. We'll see that. And finally, Israel will triumph over Babylon, that is, the world. So, in some ways, what we're seeing in the Isaiah chapters where Nephi will finish things off today is a double preview of what will take place in the last days. The first time I'll walk you through using Assyria as our example, and then I'll walk you through a second time using Babylon as the example. What's interesting there is both Assyria and Babylon were tools in the hands of God to punish Israel for its wickedness. Assyria is the one that scattered the northern kingdom, and Babylon is the one that took captive the southern kingdom and had them in, their, in that Babylonian exile. And yet, after Babylon, they returned, a remnant returned to rebuild Jerusalem. Just like, eventually, the scattered tribes will be gathered back in and restored to their lands of promise. We're seeing wickedness and righteousness. We'll see hints of crucifixion and resurrection. We see apostasy, restoration, scattering, gathering. It's all the same pendulum swinging back and forth. Okay, And so to see the way... Isaiah is wrapping it up with the destruction of Babylon as the climax of all of this and the peace that reigns in the aftermath. Oh, if we can simply make it through the last days and be here for the, or have the world prepared for the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign, that's what the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil is meant to accomplish. So sign me up. Let's get going. I'll also show by way of big picture, if I could just review briefly all 12 of the chapters that Isaiah is, is giving us with the help of Nephi here, and then drawing a modern day parallel, I think this will help us understand why Nephi is including these particular 12 chapters. Because I'll admit, I actually prefer his taste in Isaiah from 1 Nephi. I love Isaiah 48 and 49. I prefer Jacob's taste in Isaiah that he quoted in 2 Nephi 6, 7, 8, because I love Isaiah 48, 40, or 49, 50, 51. I love Abinadi's taste in Isaiah. He's hard to beat because Isaiah 53 is hard to beat. I love Jesus' taste in Isaiah when he quotes things from Isaiah 52 and 54 and so on. Later, next week, we'll see, Isaiah, we'll see Nephi go back to a little more Isaiah without being so obvious about it. 
and, and cull as many quotations and allusions from Isaiah 29 as he can. And that's an incredible chapter. All my years of studying the Book of Mormon, I've wondered, Nephi, why would you pick these 12 chapters to just drop on us uninterrupted uh, when in some ways these are more historical rather than doctrinal? They seem to be much more your time period than ours. And with that, Nephi's probably kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look a little closer. Think a little harder. This is for you, too. My history is your prophecy. Okay? So, let me just fly through it quickly. Now, here I'll refer to the chapters by their number in 2 Nephi. If you want to go back to the Isaiah original, just subtract 10. Okay? So, for this first one, this is 2 Nephi 12, or subtract 10, Isaiah chapter 2. This is where Isaiah begins with his focus on the Latter-day Temple. The mountain of the Lord and all nations flowing uphill towards it. It's going to get wicked pretty quick, but he starts with this emphasis on the righteous and, and this latter-day promise that all will be well. We're seeing the end from the beginning here. Then chapter 13 of 2 Nephi is where you really start to see the wickedness and worldliness. Remember the daughters of Zion that needed to be turned inside out to show them what they really were? But then in chapter 14 is this promise that God will cleanse and redeem his people. The filth of the daughters of Zion begins to be washed away. And in those first three chapters, I get a sense that God is describing, oh, his cast of characters. And the fact that you can switch roles if you choose. We see the righteous at the beginning of 12, and then we see the wicked in 13, but we also get the promise in 14 that the wicked can change. And that's absolutely essential for all we'll see moving forward. Because in chapter 15, if we saw the players in 12, 13, 14, we see the game laid out in chapter 15. And it's no game. It's more of a war. But in 15, there we see Israel scattered and the promise of them being gathered. So in our day, here's the scattering and gathering of Israel, and that's the name of the game we've been called to play. Well, how's God going to be able to initiate that, roll it forth? The next four chapters describe what Israel is going to be going through. But if we're looking at the latter day, this is our history. Because in chapter 16, when Isaiah is called of God, well, think about it. In the restoration, a prophet is called to begin the work of restoration. Then chapter 17, all these enemies combine against Judah. Think about all the opposition that arose in the aftermath of the foundation of the church and the restoration of the gospel. Chapter 18, the reminder that you've got to trust in God to survive the Assyrian conquest. Well, in the latter days, the saints better trust in God rather than the arm of flesh as well. And then chapter 19, where we ended last week, here's the Messiah bringing light to those in darkness. And to think about the light that we must shine to the world in the latter days. We are that light. Now, from there, we move into new material, and like we saw in our quick review of the chapter headings, chapter 20, the destruction of, the, of Assyria, is meant to remind us, or foreshadow, prepare us, for the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. So here's the future, take one. Chapter 20, destruction. Chapter 21, the Messiah establishes peace. Or in our day, here is the coming of Christ, Emmanuel among us. Followed by 22, when all nations praise the Lord, or in the latter day, the millennial reign has begun. Then, if that was the future take one, let's do the future take two, just to make sure we're remembering by way of repetition. 
Chapter 23, the destruction of Babylon. In our day, that's parallel to the destruction of the wicked, Armageddon. And then 24, Israel is gathered and Babylon is destroyed. Again, there's the millennial reign of Emmanuel. To me, it's amazing what Nephi has laid out for us, drawing upon his immediate past. Remember, Isaiah lived a century and a half before, Isaiah, before Nephi did. But also what the people were going through in Nephi's time, as they're dragged off to Babylon with the promise of eventually returning. What Nephi himself and his family have gone through, being scattered to a new world, promised land, to be scattered a second time when Nephites had to split off from Lamanites. This is incredibly personal to him. And it better be personal to us. Because here we are living in the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Okay? You with me then? You you ready for all of this? If so, then dive into chapter 20, and we're going to pick up with the woes that chapter 19 ended in. Chapter 19, woe to this, and woe about that, and he's warning the wicked of of our impending doom. With a whole lot of repetition of the phrase, his hand is stretched out still. And remember, both hands are stretched out. One is the hand of justice, the other the hand of mercy. And we have to decide which one we'll take. Now, the way it starts in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, another woe. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees. Now, who, uh, who decrees things? Well, typically, that's the government, right? There's the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. But this one is not, the, the council here isn't that wonderful. It's not coming from a prince of peace. The decrees are unrighteous. In some ways, we're stacking the legal deck against certain people. And we'll see who suffers because of that in just a moment. But decreeing unrighteous decrees then gets a rhyme. Remember, Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. So here's the rhyme of that first one. That right grievousness, which they have prescribed. So here's the equivalent of decreeing unrighteous decrees. But I love the shift in metaphor. If they're writing grievousness, which they've prescribed, I picture a doctor there, and doctors are meant to heal, and yet here they're hurting. What kind of a prescription is that? You're writing grievousness? Instead of helping me, you're harming me by saying, you know what you need more of? You need more grievousness. You need more melancholy. Uh, We need an increase in depression and anxiety. What do you think? Uh, We're going to make you feel horrible. And won't that make you feel better? I mean, what kind of a quack did I go to that's writing that kind of prescription? But when you live in a topsy-turvy world, like we saw last week, that call good evil and evil good and bitter sweet and sweet bitter, then no wonder the decrees are unrighteous and the prescriptions are grievous. But notice who it's hurting most. All of those things are meant to turn away the needy from judgment. And they're the ones that would need righteous judgment. They're not getting it. No one's coming to their rescue. Let's rhyme that idea. They take away the right from the poor of my people. And those poor have the right, and yet they're being wronged. The next idea, that widows may be their prey. And then let's rhyme that idea, that they may rob the fatherless. To rob someone who's already been robbed of his or her parents? To prey upon widows? Talk about the weak and the wounded at the edge of the herd. No wonder the predators are preying on them. The most defenseless and vulnerable members of society 
are the ones that are bearing the brunt of the wickedness all around them. No wonder he warned them that they would be no better than Sodom and Gomorrah for their social sins. For us to remember in the Old Testament, it's amazing how often the Lord how specified his the people for whom he had the greatest sense of care, the widows, the orphans, the strangers. Again, it's the marginal in society. And if we are keeping them marginal or further marginalizing them, if we're making them more vulnerable, instead of giving them their rights and offering righteous judgment, then no wonder we don't deserve the kingdom that we've been setting up for ourselves. Okay? That's why Assyria is on its way, Israel, Judah. God's got his eyes on both of you, so beware. He says in verse 3 and 4, What will ye do in the day of visitation? And we're talking the visitation of your own destruction. When the piper comes to be paid, what will ye do? In the desolation which shall come from far, to whom will ye flee for help? Where will ye leave your glory? Ah, without me they shall bow down under the prisoners. They shall fall under the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Yes, hand of justice, hand of mercy, which will we take? But taking the hand of justice and judgment, that's what he's warning us about. What are we going to do when that comes knocking? If his hand's stretched out still, it's to knock on the door. Will we be ready to open it? Oh, the, the, let's actually make those questions more than just rhetorical. Let's actually respond to them. What will we do in the day of visitation? What excuses could I possibly come up with to justify my unrepented sin? Oh, that's a, again, I don't want to have to pay that piper. So what will I do? Think about it. Or this one, to whom will I flee? Remember what we saw in the book of Revelation. When the fortress itself is fleeing... When mountains and islands are fleeing away, well, there was my sanctuary, and it's now gone. So where will I flee? I've got nowhere to go. And finally, where will ye leave your glory? Remember that when we get to Isaiah 14, 2 Nephi 24. Because, oh, the kings of Assyria, the kings of Babylon, yeah, where have they left their glory? In the dust. Just like the fads and fashions so quickly fade, the wimples and the crisping pins, anyone? I don't see many people decked out in those anymore. Well, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, take the Greeks, take the Romans, take whatever empire you want. Where have they left their glory? Because they don't have any left. Think about what God said in the garden. When he asked Adam and Eve, according to the Genesis account, where art thou? And according to the Moses account, where goest thou? Now, God the omniscient knows the answers to those questions, but I don't know if Adam and Eve did. And so an amazing way to force them to wrestle with their own reality. Kids, do you know where you are right now, having partaken of that fruit? Do you know where you're going to go from here in hopes of eventually finding your way back to the tree of life? Wake up, my children. Understand what awaits you. And Isaiah is giving just that kind of wake-up call. He then says in verse 5 through 7, shifting the audience, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, 
The staff in their hand is their indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation. And that nation of hypocrites, you got, guessed it, is Israel and Judah. Against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil. How's that for Maher Shalal Hashbaz? To take the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That's worse than dust. We're now in the mire. Howbeit, he meaneth not so. So that's not the king of Assyria's intent. He's not trying to be the Lord's instrument, but he's going to be it nonetheless. Neither doth his heart think so, but in his heart it is to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Now what Isaiah is getting at in those verses is Assyria is going to be God's instrument of correction. Uh, back in the olden days when they used the paddle, well, Assyria is going to be the schoolmaster's paddle. In this instance, it's going to, he's, Assyria is going to be God's rod, God's staff. Those are the rhyming words that Isaiah, or the rhyming images Isaiah is giving us. And we've learned from the Book of Mormon, for example, that it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. Or that as President Packer used to say, we are more often punished by our sins than punished for our sins. And so does God have to step in and provide that punishment? Or will he step back, since Israel doesn't want God anyway? Will God have to withdraw his protective arm? Oh, you trusted in the arm of flesh instead. You preferred that. Okay, well, as Assyria is on its way, and it was going to come anyway, uh, its wickedness, it, it had an, an insatiable appetite for empire building. And so it's working its way around the fertile crescent, and you're going to fall like dominoes. And since you don't want me as your God, then I can't be there to protect you. As a result, Assyria and or Assyria will be the rod and staff that brings you to your senses, that wakes you up to the awful consequences of your sins. And God doesn't have to. They, you see, it's, it's not that Assyria is like, oh, here am I, send me. We saw that with Isaiah back in chapter 6, right? They're not volunteering to be the Lord's instrument. I'm not trying to help. That's the point he makes. It, this, is, this didn't enter the heart or mind of the king of Assyria. Like, let me do the God of Israel a favor, and let me do Israel a favor by waking them up to their hypocrisy so that they can repent and change. It's like, nope, I'm power-hungry myself. And so... In Assyria's zeal to take over the world, God sees his opportunity. Okay, this will be natural consequence. And if this is the law of the harvest in action and Israel reaps or sows what it's, or reaps what it has sown, then so be it. This is in some ways God allowing Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh did to the, to the Israelites. Or allowing... Judas to do to him, to Jesus, what Judas wanted to do, to allow Lucifer to rebel in premortality. It's amazing what God can do even with our wickedness, uh, to, in, to turn other people's wickedness around. What he says in verse 8 through 11 builds on that. We're, again, we're still hearing from the king of Assyria in all of his boastful pride. He saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? I mean, they're princes to me in my kingdom. But compared to all the other kings out there, my princes outrank the kings of other countries. 
is not Kalno as Carchemish, is not Hamath as Arpad, is not Samaria as Damascus. He's just comparing my cities to the cities that we will eventually conquer and destroy. He says, as my hand hath founded the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and to her idols? Oh, talk about Assyrian pride there. All these rival kingdoms are falling like dominoes. And the latest one to fall will be Syria. Remember, they're going up and around the Fertile Crescent, so they're working their way from north to south down the Mediterranean coast. We'll pick off Syria, then we'll pick off Israel, then we'll pick off Judah, and we'll be hitting Moab and Edom and all these others along the way. Eventually, we hope to topple Egypt. There's the big prize. But the way he's describing this, notice the word that kept coming up, idols and graven images. And look what we did to Sumerian idols. And look what we've done to the idols, these false gods that these people are worshiping. Their kings are less than our princes. And their gods are mere idols that are, less, that are inferior to our own. Well, you're about to see that change king of Assyria, because the God of Israel and Judah is no mere idol. He's no mere graven image. When you beat the, the Israelites, you didn't beat Israel's God, because Israel's God was nowhere present. Israel didn't want their God. The next question, though, will be Judah. And it's not the Judah, Judean idols, it's the God of Judah. If, God, if Judah will have him to be their God, then Jehovah will have Judah to be his people. Maybe that will be the righteous remnant that remains. We'll see. But don't chalk it up to, your, to the superiority of your gods, because no, those really are idols. Those really are images and nothing more. In verse 12 and 13, Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and upon Jerusalem, and that whole work is to reduce it down to its righteous remnant, well, once that happens, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, By the strength of my hand and by my wisdom, I have done these things. For I am prudent. I have moved the borders of the people and have robbed their treasures. I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Now, by the time we meet the king of Babylon in chapter 24, he's going to have the same problem as the king of Assyria. President Benson, if I remember. Man, no, it was uh, President Packer. That's right. President Packer called this the I problem. And not EYE, although it was a, a shortage of vision here. It's an I problem as in the letter I. Me, mine, my, I. Think about how many times the king of Assyria uses that word. As he keeps focusing on himself. No wonder God has to reduce the stout heart of the king of Assyria. Because, yeah, you conquered the world. Guess why? Because the people that could have pushed you back with my help didn't want my help and weren't worthy of my help. So of course you won. It's like when your team loses because you really sense that the refs were on the other team's side. 
we were we weren't playing with all of our best players. Uh, we we drove out our superstar. We God wasn't on the field that day, and so don't let it go to your head, Assyrians. You weren't the ones acting here. We were the ones being acted upon, our own wickedness. And so we've suffered the result of our own sins. You were just a rod or staff in the hands of God to correct in a hypocritical nation. With that in mind, think about what he says in verse 14 and 15. Because the king of Assyria is not done boasting. He still thinks he's a cedar of Lebanon that's about to get chopped down. He thinks he's an oak of Bashan that's about to get leveled. Well, he says in 1415, My hand, oh, there's still the first person singular pronouns. My hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. There was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. I mean, this is some interesting smack talk here. No rival nations could even make a peep against me. It's like I was, this was, this was like, shooting fish in a barrel, or to borrow Isaiah's language, this is like shooing away a chicken from its nest so I can scoop up the eggs. It was as easy as that. Shoo, shoo, go, go away. Kings of Samaria, or kings of Israel, kings of Syria, you're next, kings of Judah. But to understand this idea of scattering the hens so they can just scoop up the eggs, well, Think about the mother hen and the willingness to extend her protective wings. The question is, is the hen still there? The hen had been expelled by the Israelites. Would the people of Judah hold on to the hen so that the hen could protect them from the dangers that were coming? The way he says it in verse 15, Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Interesting question. Let's repeat it. Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. You see what Isaiah is doing there? He's bringing all these metaphors together. Because at the beginning of the chapter, he, he described the Assyrians as his rod and his staff. Here then, he talks about an axe and a saw, but then rhymes it with the staff and the rod that he'd already mentioned. So what Isaiah is doing here is kind of assembling a bunch of images, all of which refer to Assyria. Assyria is my rod, my staff, my axe, my saw, any instrument of destruction that I'm using, any instrument of punishment. Like I said, I'm going to use Assyria to chop down the, the so-called mighty trees of Israel. But guess what? <laughs> By the time you're all said and done, you think you're a mighty tree yourself, Assyria, and you're going to get chopped down too. Because in reality, it wasn't you doing any of the work. It was me. It was the God of Israel withholding his protective hand from people that didn't want it. So the day will someday come where the axe ends up turning on itself in an interesting turn of events that the saw will start sawing off its own handles. Because what kind of an axe boasts, like, look at all the stuff that I did, when the axe didn't swing itself? It couldn't. The saw couldn't move itself. It took some outside agent to lift the axe and swing it, to take the saw and begin to move. 
Yeah, I hope this is making sense because once we see what what's going to the to the Assyrians' heads, then no wonder that head has to be lowered just like everyone else. You are just an instrument. In some ways, take take a more famous story when Ammon is boasting in the Lord, and Aaron assumes he must be boasting in himself. It's like, ooh, careful! I think you're getting a little ahead of yourself. And and Ammon's like, no, it's not about me. We were only instruments in the hands of God. I'm not boasting in anything I've done. I'm just thrilled, just ecstatic about all that God has done. He happened to use us, fine, but he could use anyone. And if the king of Assyria had been humble, as as, as Ammon was, then it would be, it's not going to my head. I don't have any proud looks and stout hearts. It's not my wisdom that did it. I somehow was an instrument in the hands of the God of Israel to remind those people of whose they really are and who they really are. This, I I hope, is making sense. Because from then on out, we're going to see Assyria destroyed today. Notice, for example, in verse 16. Therefore, so because of those stout hearts and high words, therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and keep your eye out for that phrase, It loses something in English, at least the King James translation, or here in the Book of Mormon. But hosts means armies. In Spanish, it's el Señor de los ejércitos. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies. And you Assyrians, you think you have the the biggest, strongest, mightiest army on earth. Well, I'm the Lord of the real armies, the hosts of heaven. And he's going to refer to himself with that title over and over and over. Let's keep the military metaphor going. So the Lord of hosts... Therefore shall he send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel shall be for a fire, his holy one for a flame, and shall burn and shall devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. They shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth, And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. Now think about all of the burning words, fire and flame and devour and consume. That's what it's going to look like. That's what Israel's going to look like in the wake of the Assyrian invasion. But then again, that's what Assyria itself will look like once they get gobbled up by the Babylonians. You're just a medium-sized fish eating up the small fish like Syria and, and Israel and, in your case, hopefully uh, Judah. But your middle fish, Assyria, is about to get gobbled by a larger fish, Babylon. And then Babylon, you just wait because there's a bigger fish swimming in your direction, namely the Medes and the Persians. No, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, an hour of pomp, an hour of show, and we're seeing, speaking of dominoes falling, well, you're a big domino that's eventually going to fall too, Assyrian Empire. The way he says it at the end, it's going to be like an army, speaking of military metaphors, where the standard bearer faints. My wife's middle na- or maiden name is Stoddard, and from the early English, that Stoddard meant a standard bearer. And my wife's family is rightfully proud of that last name. And the heritage and the expectation that that name implies. Because especially back in medieval time or ancient time, 
the banner, raise the ensign, right? The banner is unfurled. All nations look up. This is the army that's on its way. And, oh, if you can topple the, the standard bearer, then people start wondering what, what flag is flying. Think about when a, when a fort or fortress is conquered and that flag is lowered and the conquering army's flag is raised in its place. Oh, there's danger when the standard bearer falls. And so as we gather round the standard bearer as we sing, that standard better bearer better be standing, holding the standard aloft, and we're all marching forward to defend it. There's the cause of Christ. Well, imagine if the standard bearer falls. Or, as the other metaphor that you, he uses as a rhyme, if the mighty trees of the forest all fall, no more oaks of Bashan, no more cedars of Lebanon. He uses a lot of tree imagery, Isaiah does. But here there are so few of the forest giants remaining that a little child can write them. In other words, can count them and make enough tally marks. Ask a little kid, go find a sunbeam and ask them, how high can you count? And they'll be so proud of whatever the number is, but it's pretty low. And so how many of the mighty are still remaining once God's burning judgment spreads forth across the forest? This is a forest fire of consequences of our sins. And even a little child can go, oh, one, two, three, how many are there left? Okay. From there, verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, there's our key word, we're thinking gathering, the remnant of Israel, such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more stay, and the word there means to rely, shall no more rely upon him that smote them. I mean, why would you trust in your enemy anyway? Why would you rely on someone who's coming to, to mow you down? Well, that's what they were doing. Instead of staying on them, relying on them, but they shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So they're going to do it for real this time. They really are relying on the Lord. Well, once that happens, the remnant shall return. Oh, I'm looking at you, Sheher Yashu. Yea, even the remnant of Jacob. And what will they return to? Notice this phrase. It's incredibly important. The remnant of Jacob shall return unto the mighty God. Think about that. It's not about returning to a place. It's about returning to a person. Remember, there's a spiritual gathering that has to precede and prepare for the physical gathering. So, yeah, you'll be gathered to the lands of promise. That's fine. But to get that far, first you have to be gathered to the mighty God. You have to return to him. For though thy people, Israel, shall be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in all the land. Oh, there's some surprises there. On the one hand, the innumerable seed of Abraham like the sand of the sea, yet whittled down because of their wickedness until only a remnant remains. But think about it. The consumption, the conflagration, the fire that burns through the forest to eliminate trees that have grown too lofty for themselves, 
that kind of consumption will overflow with righteousness. Huh. So what God is doing here will have a righteous result. Remember, the, instead of, you, you've denied the, the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and instead you're going to have a rushing, roaring river come and drown you once the Assyrian host comes. Well, in this case, it's a different kind of overflowing. It's overflowing with righteousness. God knows just what to do. And he'll bring the most good, even out of the most evil. The way he says it in verse 24, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Lord of armies, remember, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. Yeah, he shall smite thee with a rod. Fine. He shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. But who, Egypt? Remember the Israelites got out of that. You'll get out of the Assyrian hold as well. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. You see, all that was just redemptive turbulence, like Elder Maxwell used to call it. Something to be stirred up to a recognition of your sins, and then repent of them. That's what the Assyrian conquest will, it, well, it's what it's meant to accomplish. If you'll simply have a soft enough heart to be able to be moved, to be changed. He then says in verse 26, The Lord of hosts, same title as usual, shall stir up a scourge for him. Scourged by the Assyrians. There's the rod, there's the staff, there's the axe, there's the saw. Here's a scourge according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. Those were Old Testament stories about destruction that Isaiah's audience would have all known very well. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. And talk about a glorious foreshadowing of the freedom that would someday come. You see, yokes and burdens... Nobody wants those, at least not in the negative way. When the Lord says in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you, it was to replace a much heavier yoke that people were wearing before. We're going to have one yoke or another. There's no way around it. You can either be yoked to the wicked world, and that's a weight you don't want to bear. There's a burden that will crush you. Or we can take the Savior's yoke upon us, and that yoke is easy, and that burden is light. You see, this heavy yoke and, and heavy burden will be removed. Why? Because of the anointing. Kings are anointed, and someday the King of Kings will come. Priests are anointed. And yes, who is eventually to return? The high priest of good things to come. The anointed one is Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. And someday that wonderful counselor will come to free us. There's the Lord of hosts among us. No, no wonder the Israelites were so anxious as they awaited for the Messianic age. The next few verses then describe the journey the Assyrians would take to Jerusalem. And it's city after city, all of them falling like dominoes, like I said before. And then the chapter ends in verse 33 and 34. Behold, 
the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. He shall cut down the thickets of the forests with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. There's more tree imagery like I told you about. And all of it is meant to clarify. The proud will be humbled. The lofty will be leveled. This is Isaiah's version of saying, Timber! Because the, the mighty tree is about to come crashing down to the forest floor. And whether that's a warning to the Israelites, because they're about to fall, a warning to the people of Judah, because they would be next if they don't repent, or a warning to the, to the Paul Bunyans that are coming from, out of the Assyrian East, that you're going to end up getting crushed yourself. So careful how you swing the axe when the axe is all you ever, ever are. With that, and building on this idea of a felled forest, if, think about that. If we've chopped, off, chopped down all the cedars of Lebanon and all the oaks of Bashan, if everything has been, been, the top of the bough has been lopped, uh, the, the high ones of stature have been hewn down, take all of that imagery at the end of chapter 20, and then jump straight into chapter 21, or Isaiah 11. Because what's going to come of that stump, if that's all we've got left? Now, for this one, you, we have to understand chapter 11 really, really well of Isaiah, 2 Nephi 21, okay, at the 10. And the reason why we need to know this is because Joseph Smith needed to know this. The angel Moroni made that crystal clear back in 1827 when he kept appearing that night and quoting Old Testament scripture, including Isaiah chapter 11. He told Joseph, this chapter is about to be fulfilled. And this is a chapter that must have weighed heavily on Joseph because later in life, when he was doing the JST, when he was wrestling with biblical scripture and trying to make sense of it, he had all kinds of questions about Isaiah that are now preserved in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 113. And guess where Joseph's questions all centered? Isaiah 11. It's like, okay, it's been years and I keep wrestling with it. I, I, Moroni told me I needed to. I just want to make sure I'm on the right path of understanding. So. Last, or two years ago, when we studied the Old Testament, we spent some serious time in Isaiah chapter 11. I'll go a little shorter here as we go through 2 Nephi 21. Uh, if you can go back to that old video and see more of it. But, but to understand how this chapter relates to the restoration is going to be key. But we also need to see how does it relate to what Nephi is going through. Why would he quote it? Well, I'll start at the, at the, at the top. Verse 1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a better translation than stem would be stump. And where are all these stumps coming from? Well, we just saw the axes swing at the end of chapter 20, right? Uh, the forest has been leveled to a bunch of stumps, and what's going to happen with that? You start picturing a hopelessness for their future, that nothing's going to come of this. The trees have all been leveled. But no, a rod that is a new shoot, a new growth, will spring out of the stump of Jesse. And just in case you missed it, let me rhyme it. A branch shall grow out of his roots. You got it? More tree imagery? 
Assyria, there's the axe, there's the saw. It's going to come and cut down the tree of Israel. Until all that's left is a stump sitting there in the ground. But the beauty of what Isaiah is saying here, building off the fallen forest in chapter 20 to move into the new growth growing from it in chapter 21, there's a promise that it's, that it's not over. It, yeah, I know it looks like a, a forest of stumps and nothing's ever going to grow out of this. But actually, Israelites are used to olive trees. Uh, Isaiah has used olive trees as a metaphor already. Zenos will give us the longest chapter in the entire Book of Mormon once we get to Jacob 5, and that's olive imagery as well. And olive trees are famous for uh, branches springing out of roots. Just new stems growing out of stumps, and somehow it keeps going as long as the roots are alive. You don't need old branches. You can grow new branches as long as roots remain, as long as remnants remain that are righteous. You with me on this? This is a profound promise in Isaiah chapter 11, 2 Nephi 21. And in fact, Isaiah himself will draw back on it in one of his most famous servant songs at the, near the end of the book. Isaiah 53 which is as messianic as it gets, talks about this Messiah who will grow up as a tender plant. So stick with the plant imagery. And then this, as a root out of a dry ground. It's like you'd think nothing can grow out of this. And yet, watch this magnificent growth. So Isaiah 53 is drawing on the imagery of Isaiah 11. And as we know, this suffering servant is the Messiah, and we see that Messiah as Jesus Christ. What a miracle that Jesus could grow out of such dry ground. What a miracle that Christ could resurrect the kingdom in some ways. That this son of David, remember that's one of his titles, even in the triumphal entry, they were proclaiming the son of David is coming in to take his throne again. The Messiah is here to usher in the messianic age. The son of David is going to bring new life to the Davidic dynasty because that dynasty seemed dead. Just completely, oh, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, but then wipe it out when the Assyrians are on their way or more literally when the Babylonians come and completely level the house of David. So think about this in messianic terms and every Jew reading that would, would exactly think that. But here's where it gets more complicated. Because there are four elements listed here. A rod, a stem, a branch, and a root. And some of it's tricky because the King James translators picked those particular words. What's a rod? Well, that's, that's actually more of a stem, a new growth. And then what's the stem? Well, that's actually a stump. Okay, so i got to wrap my head around exactly what Isaiah is describing here. And again, in your mind, just picture... New growth coming from a dead stump, okay? New branches growing out of old roots. You with me? If so, now let's complicate the matter. Because if you take a normal historical Jewish or Christian reading, Isaiah is simply repeating himself twice. And that's good old Hebrew poetry in terms of synonymous parallelism. New growth from an old stump. Let me say it again. New growth from an old stump. Great. Well, from a Jewish perspective, what's the new growth? 
well, the remnant shall remain and return, that somehow the kingdom will return to Israel, despite of it being leveled and destroyed by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Okay? From a Christian perspective, well, how that's, how's that going to happen? Well, through the anointing, of course. And so the suffering servant is Jesus Christ, and the, he is the Messiah. He is the son of David. And he will grow out of this dead dynasty, and he will then restore his people. Okay? So far, so good. What actually complicates it was Joseph Smith's effort at clarifying it. And it's not his fault. Uh, this was the answer he got. So we've got, we're going to have to wrestle with this as Latter-day Saints. This is where we turn to DNC 113, where Joseph Smith asked questions about almost all four of those elements. He asked questions about three of them. The one he didn't wonder about was the branch. Because in the King James, that's, that's capital B. And so that's obviously Jesus. We've got deity there. And so the branch that's growing out of these, this dead stump, these roots, that's Jesus Christ. Okay, we got that. But what about the other three? Who is the rod? That's the stem part of the, or the new growth part of the first rhyme. And then what's the stem slash stump? So what's the old dead part from the first half of the rhyme? And then we know the branch is Jesus, but what are the roots that he's going to grow out of in the second half of the rhyme, okay? Now, if you really want to go slow on this, go back and watch the Isaiah 11 video from the Old Testament year, two years ago. But I'll, I'll give you at least a, a, a brief version of this that I hope will make sense of it all. Because what we're wrestling with is, what kind of rhyme is Isaiah giving us here? Because the, the answers that Joseph Smith got by, from his questions, let me just spell it out. When he asked, Who's the stem of Jesse? And remember, stem would be better translated as stump. And he was told, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, oh, okay. So the stump is Jesus? But we all know that the branch is Jesus. And the, 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 the stump's the old stuff. The branch is the new stuff. Is Jesus grown out of Jesus? How does, what? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so if the stump is Jesus... Who's the rod that grows out of that stump? And the way it's described in the Doctrine and Covenants, the rod, well, I'll read it to you. This is DNC 113, verse 3 and 4. What is the rod spoken of? And the answer, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. And ever since that was revealed, it's been interpreted to mean Joseph Smith. So, in the first half of the rhyme, Joseph Smith is growing out of Jesus Christ. Or the restoration is growing out of historical Christianity. And historical Christianity has gotten to a point where it seems not to be giving forth new life, new growth, new revelation, ongoing guidance from God. And so new growth has to come forth. And it's going to come through the restoration. Joseph Smith. But then, when Joseph asks, okay, so far so good, what about the root? We know the branch is Jesus. Who's the, this root of Jesse that the branch is going to grow out of? And again, the way it's described in the Doctrine and Covenants, Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belong the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom, for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in these last days. And again, that sounds like Joseph Smith. Well, what's the problem? Uh, so we've got two elements that represent Jesus and two elements that represent Joseph Smith. And so here's Joseph Smith growing out of 
Jesus. Here's, new to, uh, here's the restoration growing out of Christianity. Uh, great. But this is where it's hard. That doesn't fit the order. Because if the rod is growing out of the stem, that's Joseph Smith is growing out. Based on the interpretations we got, the answers we got in DNC 113, that means that Joseph Smith is growing out of Jesus. But then the repeat, the branch grows out of the roots. Now it's Jesus, the branch, growing out of the root, which is Joseph Smith. And now I'm super confused. I said before, it all depends on what kind of rhyme Isaiah is giving us. Synonymous parallelism is he says something and then says the same thing in different terms. Antithetical parallelism is I'll say one thing and then I'll say the exact, exact opposite of that thing. Contrast. But then there's chiasmus, and in a chiasm, it's the first thing's going to rhyme with the last thing, and the second thing's going to rhyme with the second to last thing, and the middle thing's going to rhyme with each other, and that's the part that matters most. But it's this reverse order sort of a thing. Now, the way that Jews and Christians have always interpreted Isaiah 11 is the simple assumption it's got to be a synonymous parallelism. He's saying the same exact thing twice. And so new growth from, from old. Great. But if that were the case with Joseph's answers, then in either case, it would be Joseph growing out of Jesus, the restored gospel growing out of apostate Christianity. And let me just say that again. But the way the answers come in DNC 113, it reverses the order with the second one. Oh, and the only way that would make sense is if this was more chiastic rather than synonymous. That he's saying it one way and then working his way back out. Now, it's harder to identify chiasmus when there's only two phrases or two rhymes. We saw one last week, though. Manasseh, Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh. We're going to go in this order, and then we're going to work our way back out in the opposite order. So it could still work as a chiasmus if it was Joseph will grow out of Jesus and Jesus will grow out of Joseph. But how does that work? Well, in some ways... Think about it in this way. The restored gospel truly does grow out of Christianity. It is Christianity restored to its primitive fullness. Uh, returning to its New Testament basis and even its Old Testament roots. The roots are still good. And the restored gospel grows out of those glorious roots. But then what's the restoration for, really? Is it for Joseph Smith's sake? Oh, careful. Don't become your own axe, your own saw. Don't boast in what you've done. And he avoided that. No, this is, look what God has done in these latter days. He was more like Ammon, rejoicing in the Lord. And what has the restored gospel of Jesus Christ brought forth? Or better yet, what is its ultimate millennial intent? To prepare the earth for the second coming of the Son of God. It is Jesus that will come as capstone. It was Jesus as keystone. It was Jesus as cornerstone. It, he's, it's him all the way through. But he has called us to prepare the world for him. And so now do you see how the growth can go in either direction? 
that initially in the first half of the rhyme, of course it's the restored gospel growing out of Christianity. Of course it's Joseph growing out of Jesus. But what was Joseph's entire life spent doing? Trying to restore God's people to a right relationship with him. Trying to restore to us a picture of a living and loving God of a Savior with whom we can relate. It's Go read The God Who Weeps and The Christ Who Heals by Terrell and Fiona Givens. And the description of the Father and the Son that those two books present us are restoration portraits of, of God and of Christ. Those restoration portraits grew out of what Joseph Smith translated and what Joseph Smith revealed and I've never seen better pictures of deity. Okay? I, I hope this part of chapter 11 makes sense because it's, it's tricky, I'll admit. Uh, it, once you see it as chiasm instead of synonymous parallelism, that helps to make sense of things. It, makes, it starts to make sense of section 113, which otherwise would just horribly complicate the matter. It starts to make sense of why Moroni would be so emphatic, Joseph, you've got to get this chapter. You're in it twice, in two different ways. You better learn how to grow out of what Jesus has given us or given you. But also you have to produce the things that the fullness of Christ's gospel can grow out of. Yeah, as a 17-year-old kid woken up in the middle of the night, I'd be rubbing my eyes and scratching my head over what on earth are you talking about, Isaiah? just like Joseph was, okay? I hope we can wrestle with these things. But with that in mind, let's keep reading. And verse two through five is clearly Christian, uh, or well, from a Christian perspective. It's clearly messianic from a Jewish perspective. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And what does that spirit consist of? There's actually seven spirits mentioned in this passage. The spirit of the Lord is one, and that's the umbrella under which all the other six spirits can be assembled. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There's, all, there's the other six that are all underneath the broad definition of the spirit of the Lord. He will act in wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, reverence, and what will that spirit, those spirits, do for him? Notice verse 3. It shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. That's where his wisdom and understanding come in. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, because eyes and ears can be fooled. He's going to have far more trustworthy means of passing judgment. In fact, with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Think about what we saw at the beginning of this week's material where the poor and the needy and the vulnerable will be preyed upon, but not forever. Eventually, the Messiah will come and he'll right every wrong. He'll reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And there's an iron rod for you. There's the word of God that will be 
the source of judgment being passed. With the breath of his lips, and remember breath in Hebrew also means spirit. So that breath, that spirit, is what he'll use to slay the wicked. And how's that for irony? When it's the breath of life that was breathed into us originally, but now it's breathed out? Well, if they didn't rely upon that spirit, if they didn't hold on to that breath, then that's the sad result. But through it all, Isaiah says, righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Remember, girdles, this is what he ties up his robes with. I love the, the mental image of Christ girding up his loins, securing his robes of righteousness with this kind of belt, this kind of sash, righteousness and faithfulness. Oh, he'll never trip up over anything if righteousness and faithfulness are what's allowing him to move forward. With that in mind, if we're seeing new growth and new life, restoration out of apostasy, resurrection out of crucifixion, second coming out of Armageddon, what are we waiting for? Millennial reign. He says in verse 6 through 8, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Well, there's my primary kids. There's my sunbeams. The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. Asps and cockatrices, by the way, are poisonous serpents. And yet somehow these infants, the sucking child... The weaned child. These are newborns or little toddlers. They can play around the hole of a poisonous serpent. And mom and dad aren't scared in the least. Uh, what's the serpent going to do? That serpent has lost its venom. Reminds me of a story about Joseph Smith on Zion's camp when a poisonous snake was discovered and they were going to kill it. And he, Joseph stopped them from doing it. And basically said, how is the lion ever going to lie down with the lamb if we're still violent ourselves? How is a child ever going to play at the hole of a cockatrice if the cockatrice... If, if snakes strike us because we strike snakes, well, I guess we're both venomous, aren't we? And so the way Joseph put it, until we lose our venom, why are we asking snakes to lose theirs? We got a lot of work to do to become the people of the Prince of Peace. A lot of wonderful counsel to internalize. But how is it going to happen? Did you notice the ages of almost every animal that Isaiah describes there? He didn't just say, the cow, he talked about the calf. What kind of lion was it? A young one. It wasn't the sheep, it was the lamb, it wasn't the goat, it was the kid. And it was kids that were leading them. It was children, young ones. I love the thought of peace beginning with the rising generation. 
And only when parents decide to raise their children in peace instead of in war, only as parents teach them to love their neighbors and even their enemies until no more enemies exist, oh, the millennial reign will start with a rising generation that is willing to follow the Prince of Peace, come what may. Even when you think about the fall, where the seed of the woman, there's a child, and the serpent, there will be enmity between them. But to think about what the atonement does to the fall in reversing it, what the millennium, what the millennium will do to the, the wicked world, reverse it all. I love the thought of no more enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. We can all get along just fine. That's the plan. That's the hope. Until verse 9 is fulfilled. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And remember, the mountain of the Lord, we saw that as the, the promise at the beginning of everything we read in Isaiah. In Isaiah 2, the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain, all nations flowing uphill to it. No one will hurt, no one will destroy anywhere there. Because they're in the presence of the Prince of Peace. His house is the place of peace. The earth, Isaiah says, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea, which has always been kind of a funny image to me. As the waters cover the sea? What are you talking about, Isaiah? It's not just water on top. The sea is water all the way down. And maybe that's what he meant. Maybe that's the point he was trying to make. It's not just some surface level spirituality. I've heard a word recently called mindfulness. It's not just, it's not the real mindfulness and deep meditation that world religions often aim for. It's just mindfulness. Oh, meditation light. Uh, it I, made me worry, are we guilty of mixed spirituality? Mixed temple worship? Uh, mixed sacrament? If that's all it is, is kind of fast food, like let's just get it off the assembly line and stick it into the mouths of the hungry eaters. No, we got, we got to go deeper than that. We cannot settle for a surface level spirituality. Otherwise, we're like the daughters of Zion, whose beauty is only skin deep. We need the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth in the same way that waters cover the sea. There's no end to that. It goes all the way down. And when the knowledge of God sinks down into the soul, when his word is like fire in the bones, then things start to change. Then lions and lambs can lie down together. That's, that's where we have to go. That's where we have to get. He says in verse 10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which according to DNC 113 is, here's Joseph Smith imagery, a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Remember, the flag is just a signpost, not the actual destination. Joseph Smith isn't drawing people to him. He's pointing people to Christ. And what an ensign he's raised for us. In verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. How's that for gathering? This remnant which shall be left from Assyria. 
from Egypt, from Pethros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. Now, most of those names don't mean anything to us. Well, they would have meant something to the people that were scattered there. And the fact that God remembers all those names, all those places, all those isles of the sea. I can't even name every island in the Caribbean. And I spent two years of my life there. I know all the big ones, but there's some small ones I can't, I can't remember. The Lord remembers every single one. Where have these, my people, been scattered? Where must I send my servants to go gather them? In verse 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The nations, Israel, Judah, Oh, these rhymes are beautiful. All of God's people. Not just Israel and Judah, but the nations, which is the way that the word Gentiles, that's the translation of that word. In Hebrew, it just means nations. All of them, though, all those isles. God cares about all of his children and wants to bring them all home. So he says in verse 13, The envy of Ephraim also shall depart. You can picture Jeroboam's envy of Rehoboam's temple. The north always seemed to envy the south because some of the things that were there in Jerusalem that they didn't have up in Samaria. But that's a thing of the past. Okay, The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off, so nothing for them to worry about either. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not vex Ephraim. See, there were problems between these two kingdoms and it went in both directions. You got pride from above, pride from below. It's all the same issues we're dealing with today. But all of that will be a thing of the past. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And all those nations listed, Philistines, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, those are Israel's historic enemies. And yet, especially in the case of the Edomites, that's Esau to my Jacob. And brothers can be reconciled. The Ammonites, mm, that's, and the Moabites, that's, those are the sons, those are the, that's the posterity of, of Lot to my Abraham. Huh. And if we can overcome all those issues of enmity, the family can be reunited. Let's go up a generation. Let's see Abraham's seed. Not just Abraham versus Lot, but how about Isaac versus Ishmael? Can you imagine Jews and Muslims getting along perfectly? Oh, there's lions and lambs lying down together. That's the promise of the gathering. And so, verse 15 and 16, the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his mighty wind, he shall shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod. This gathering, it's going to be just as miraculous as the exodus from Egypt. In fact, the way that Jeremiah says it, it's going to be even more miraculous. It's going to, the, the exodus will pale in comparison. The, the parting of the Red Sea, oh, that's child's play, compared to the gathering of scattered Israel re, and restoring them to the lands of their inheritance. He's, the way he puts it at the end, there shall be a highway for a remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. 
a highway. We build highways to get to places quickly. We build highways because we don't have to stop at red lights. We part Red Seas so we don't have to walk all the way around it. We, don't, we, we part the Jordan so we can get into the Promised Land quickly. Well, imagine the miracle. Again, the Red Sea parting pales by comparison. The miracle of gathering scattered Israel home. Back to the mighty God, person before place. And then back to the lands of their inheritance. Oh, glorious days ahead. And we get to be a part of it. And once we are a part of it, and once we see it happening, once we recognize that the, the knowledge of the Lord is covering the earth like the waters cover the sea, talk about a time for rejoicing. And that's what chapter 22 gives us. It's a very short chapter, just six verses. We saw a short six-chapter verse in the first part of Isaiah last week. Just to remind us that it's a covert from storm and from rain. It's, it's a shelter. It's a refuge. It's a sanctuary. It's a tabernacle. Well, now that the earth itself becomes the tabernacle of God, once the earth becomes its own millennial kingdom, then how's this for rejoicing? Chapter 22, verse 1, In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. In some ways here, Isaiah is breaking out in song. This is one of his psalms, so to speak. We saw one from Nephi a few weeks ago. But here Isaiah's... I just want to praise God. I want him to know how grateful I am for all that he's done. I want him to know that I fully trust in him so that he can trust in my trust. I will be faithful. I will be loyal to him. And joyfully, I will draw water out of the wells of salvation. How's that for living water? Flowing forth, bringing life to everything it touches. The song and psalm continues in the second half, verse 4 through 6. In that day shall ye say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. It's like everybody knows that. Remember, the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters of the sea. So cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Oh, as joyful as that sound, as exultant as it is, even all of that is just understatement. Great is the Holy One. Oh, he's greater than great. This is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. No wonder we have to have a hallelujah chorus to present that news to a waiting world. This, in some ways, is where Nephi could stop and say, that's where, that's where we're aiming. That's where we're headed. That's the promise of the gathering of God. That is righteousness over wickedness and resurrection over crucifixion and restoration over apostasy. That is every isle of the sea being remembered, including the one we're on. I hope that we all know just how well God remembers us. And despite our own scattered state, 
He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly how to reach us. He's sending people forth to search us out and to bring us home. And if we can trust in that, if we can trust in the God of Israel, then yes, we will be going to the wells of salvation and drawing out living water. We will be the woman at the well who finally sees in Jesus everything she'd been waiting for and hoping for through her hard, hard life. My friends, this point, like I said, Nephi could stop. But he wants to review the whole thing all over again. So he's going to shift from the 8th century with the Assyrian enemy to the 6th century with the Babylonian enemy. And going through an entire another round of scattering with the promise of gathering. Another round of redemption. And if you can understand what the Lord is promising, then no matter how many times you have to go around the spin cycle, no matter how many times you go, you revolve around the pride cycle, no, how, no matter how many destructions have to wake us up, and no matter how many periods of prosperity lull us back into spiritual sleep. I am so grateful God never gives up on us because he knows the process will work. So hold on to what he's said about Assyria. And as we now pivot to Babylon and then on to Nephi's explanation of it all, hopefully it will make perfect sense where we are, even in our modern scattered state, knowing that we will yet be gathered back to God. Our task then in these last two chapters of Isaiah is to review what we've already seen. It's to swap out Assyria for Babylon and realize that no matter who the enemy of the day happens to be, eventually they will fall before the God of Israel. And that scattering will now come to gathering, that sorrow will turn into rejoicing. It will be tears either way, but these will be tears of joy rather than tears of sorrow and suffering. So prepare for that. Trust in that. Now, when we get to Isaiah 13, also known as 2 Nephi 23, we'll go through these next two chapters fairly quickly because we've already seen it spelled out in the Assyrian example. Now we're just shifting to the Babylonian one. And this might be important because in some ways Babylon becomes more of the permanent metaphor than Assyria ever was. Babylon becomes something that the Doctrine and Covenants still refers to repeatedly. Uh, in the latter days, we have to flee Babylon. We have to come out, be clean, those that bear the vessels of the Lord. We've got to leave. God is opening the doors and allowing us to return to rebuild our city, rebuild Zion, rebuild the temple of God there. Now, Babylon becomes the ultimate metaphor for all of these other metaphors are images of iniquity, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or Egypt or Assyria or whatever it might be. Babylon's the big one. So let's dive into it. Chapter 23, verse 1, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, did see. And there is a definite weight of prophetic responsibility. This mantle is a heavy one, but it's one that prophets are willing to bear. They cannot shrug it off. In fact, in Isaiah, this begins a new section where all kinds of foreign countries are given prophetic messages. 
Remember, God has a chosen people, but he's no respecter of persons. And so he chooses those that will then go out and choose everyone else. So Isaiah, you've warned Israel. You've now warned Judah. I even want you, well, you've warned Assyria that, hey, you're just the axe. You're just the saw. Quit boasting about yourself. I now need you to warn Babylon, even ahead of the fact. And so here's a burden for them. If, I, if Nephi, by the way, were to continue quoting Isaiah chapters, we would then see Isaiah give burdens, prophetic messages, to all kinds of other nations, like the Moabites and the Edomites and the Ammonites and those other people that he just mentioned in a previous chapter. They all deserve God's redemptive reach. And so Isaiah is trying to reach out to them. But the one I, that Nephi ends on here is the big one for Babylon. So, message to them, verse 2 and 3. Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain. So here's another ensign to the nations. This is going to be a different one, though. Exalt the voice unto them. Shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. And here's why. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also commanded my mighty ones. For mine anger is not upon them that rejoice in my highness. You see, as long as you are loyal to me, I can be loyal to you. I'm not going around trying to destroy nations and top, topple dominoes. I'm trying to wake up the world so that they can turn back to the God that they've rejected. And so let me lift this banner and send my sanctified ones. You see, in some ways, even by taking Israel captive, the Babylonians get to learn from the Israelites. Think about what King Nebuchadnezzar will learn from Daniel. Think about what King Darius will learn from Daniel. Think about what King Cyrus will learn from Nehemiah and so on. It's interesting that even, yeah, it's, so, it's incredible how much mileage God can get out of everything. And by scattering Israel, the Gentile nations get to associate with Israel. Eventually, they're going to gather Israel back and thus be gathered home in the process. This is their chance to rub shoulders with my covenant people who haven't been keeping the covenant. But eventually everything will turn around. As long as you rejoice in my highness, this little remnant will bring everybody back to the covenant that they've rejected. He then says in verse 4 and 5, The noise of a multitude in the mountains like as of a great people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. Ooh, sounds like they heard the call and they've come running. But here, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. Yea, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Hmm. So this is, sounds a lot more like Armageddon than Adam and Diamond, though the one will lead to the, the other. What you're seeing here is everyone gathered because justice is finally being served. I mean, righteous indignation can only wait so long, right? And so gather everyone. The Lord is mustering the host for the battle. Verse 6, howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, every man's heart shall melt, they shall be afraid, pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them, they shall be amazed one at another, their faces shall be as flames. I mean, this is a scary scene 
Isaiah is depicting. And yet there's nothing quite like fear to reduce us to humility. The proud claim to be afraid of nothing. I remember as a kid going trick-or-treating and the toughest guy among us, I think we were like fourth grade, and he was boasting like, hey, if any older kids come and try to steal my candy, I'll show them who's boss. And almost prophetically, we did get accosted by older teenagers that were demanding candy. And guess whose bag they took? Ironically, it was his, the very one that was boasting. We ended up pooling our resources and making sure he had plenty of candy to go home with from the rest of our bags. But I still remember that as just being ironic, like the one who was boasting of his courage was the one that was reduced most to fear. And that's what's happening here with these nations, these lofty trees that need to be leveled because they're not a forest of faith. In verse 9, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Is this sounding like signs of the times? Is this sounding like last days preparing for Armageddon? The sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, the stars refusing to shine. Here, interesting, the constellations don't even work, which is interesting because those were so essential to be able to get one's bearings in the ancient world. So if the stars aren't shining, if the constellations aren't there to point me to the North Star, to help me see where I'm supposed to be headed in life, no wonder I'm hopelessly lost. The way he puts it in the next verse, I will punish the world for evil. In fact, it'll punish itself as it's flailing around in the darkness. The wicked will be punished for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay down the haughtiness of the terrible. Hmm. Whether it's the wicked unable to find their way out of the self-imposed darkness whether it's the righteous that shouldn't have to see the results of what the wicked are doing to themselves. Either way, there's no light by which to see things. It is a day of darkness. By then, verse 12, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. I mean, this is supply and demand we're dealing with. If remember, if the Trees of the forest are so few in number that even a little child can count them. If survivors of these wars of wickedness are so rare, then no wonder they're worth so much. If a man is more precious than fine gold, it's because there's so few remaining. It's rarity that drives up prices. That drives up worth. Okay? Interesting imagery. He then says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as the chaste roe, and as a sheep that no man taketh up, and shall every man turn to his own people, and flee every one into his own land. I mean, this is every man for himself. This is everyone fleeing for terror. Destruction taking place among those that have escaped 
this is Maharshalal Hashbaz, and it's coming back to bite you. In verse 15, he says, Everyone that is proud shall be thrust through. Yea, everyone that is joined to the wicked shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled. Their wives ravished. There should have been a trigger warning there. What Isaiah is describing here is horrific. But one thing that's hard to understand is who is the source of this suffering and who are the victims who are the recipients of it? Because on the one hand, Babylon will dish it all out. They will be as destructive as the Assyrians were. I mean, they'll conquer Assyria and conquer all the nations that Assyria had conquered before, and then some, including Judah. And so to the Judahites, beware of what is coming when the Babylonians are on their way. But in an interesting role reversal, just like happened a century and a half before, Assyria was causing destruction, but then reverse it, Assyria will be destroyed. And now Babylon causing destruction, reverse it, Babylon will be destroyed. Because the very next verse, when he says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver and gold, nor shall they delight in it. These are the Medes and the Persians. And that was the next fish that was there to gobble up the Babylonian one. Yeah, Babylon, you beat Assyria, but the Medes and the Persians will beat you. And they're not going to care about how much gold and silver you have. They're not going to take it from you. They're not just going to take tribute. They're going to level you. They are going to destroy the Babylonian excellency. You thought you were the next sequoia. No, you're the next stump. And the Medes and Persians will come to mow you down. So be careful about boasting in yourself, mighty Babylon. It's, this is ringing bells and echoes of Assyria from a few generations before. In verse 18, now speaking of the Babylonians as victim rather than conqueror, he says, their bows shall also dash the young men to pieces. They shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. I mean, that's what they thought about themselves, high and mighty. Well, it shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Because again, you've descended into the same level of wickedness that they were guilty of. To the point that it shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. I mean, this is complete devastation of Babylon. And remember, Babylon is our image of the wicked world. This is Armageddon that we're seeing in advance. And it's gone to the point that no one can pitch a tent there. No one li- the, the One of the wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Well, there's no gardens there anymore. It is a lone and dreary world because Babylon has fallen. And there's no getting back up. What he's describing here at the end of chapter 13, chapter 23, Isaiah 13, or 2 Nephi 23, this is what John was hinting at in Revelation chapter 18 with the fall of the merchant city, a.k.a. Babylon, in its economic form. 
and everyone bemoaning the fact that nobody's buying and selling anymore? Well, what were they buying and selling? The souls of men. And men were costing more than the golden wedge of Ophir. I mean, to understand what the world is after, this is the prodigal son off in, its far, in his far country, reduced to nothingness. And yet now, the, that far country itself is nothing. Why would we put our stock in a market that's going to crash? Why would we put our hopes in a place that's about to be decimated? Why lay up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt when we could be laying up our treasures in heaven? It's what Isaiah's hinting at. It's what Nephi is hinting at. The way this chapter ends, with no more inhabitants what's left, wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. Their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. Owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. The wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces. It's like dragons and satyrs and owls. It's like this place is now haunted. Well, it's a ghost town. It's a cemetery of sorts. And her time is near to come, and her day shall not be prolonged, for I will destroy her speedily. Oh, the clock is ticking, Babylon. And then this last line, Yea, for I will be merciful unto my people, but the wicked shall perish. So which side do you want to be on? Remember, this is the burden for Babylon. He's not just saying, you're, you're goners and we're going to dance on your grave. No, it's come ye out of Babylon. Not just the, the people of Judah come out of exile, but any Babylonians who want to come with them. We'd love to have you join us. We want to gather not only scattered Israel, but the scattered Gentiles, the scattered Babylonians, the scattered Assyrians. God loves all his children, so please come out and come running. Because once Babylon fully falls, there's nothing left. In fact, the way he says it in the next chapter, the last Isaiah chapter that Nephi will quote here, this is Isaiah 14, and in some ways we saw a song of rejoicing over the God of Israel just a couple chapters ago, once Assyria finally falls. Well, now we're going to see a different kind of song or psalm. But this one, it's, there's an irony here. It's really fascinating because instead of rejoicing over the victor, we, we're going to taunt the, the vanquished. You understand what I'm saying? Instead of cheering on the winner, we're making fun of the loser here. It's a, it's a taunt song that is being sung in chapter 24. In some ways, if you think about the end of a game, when uh, the, especially if it's like the underdog who beats the team that no one thought they had a chance against, and that describes what's happening with the wicked world and the house of Israel finally able to overcome it through the help of God. The, you see the, the crowd just cheering rejoicing. They're so thrilled that they were able to pull off the upset. And every once in a while, uh, if the person who's in charge of the loudspeaker and the, the DJ with the music is on the, the side of the winning team, you'll sometimes hear them play, we are the champions. It's just, we are the champions, right? And there's this sense on the, on the side of the victorious Sometimes it's even the, the sha-na-na-na, sha-na-na-na, hey, hey, goodbye, right? And you're just, you're taunting the enemy. 
We're the champions. You lost, so get out. Goodbye. See you later. See you next season. Actually, there probably won't be a next season because you've been so thoroughly humiliated. They're probably going to cancel the sports program at your school. They'd probably even just level the school itself and let it just stand as a cautionary tale to those that are fighting against Zion. Now, we have to be careful because if, if we start letting pride go to our heads, then are we just succumbing to the same things the Assyrians and the Babylonians succumb to themselves? So be careful about singing that song, okay? But in the ancient world, where there's no love loss between Zion and Babylon, uh, and when they sense that Babylon has finally fallen, there's nothing but gratitude, rejoicing, and some taunting on the side of Israel. Let's see what they say. Chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel. I know they don't deserve it, but God is a long-suffering Savior. And he still will remain on Israel's side in hopes that Israel will someday return to him. Well, they, they will. He will yet choose them and set them in their own land. There's the gathering of Israel, the return from Babylon. The exile is over. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. So like I said, even those outside the house of Israel can be converted and brought in. So strangers that have joined with them. It's good that you were scattered. You met some people. You brought them back with you. You mixed and mingled and even intermarried. And yet they're coming home to Zion as now part of the house of Israel. The people shall take them and bring them to their place, yea, from far unto the ends of the earth, and they shall return to their lands of promise. By the way, those last two phrases, they're not in our version of Isaiah. They're not in the King James. This from the ends of the earth and returning to their lands of promise, that's something Nephi inserted, or something that was on the brass plates version that he had. But I love this thought of lands, plural. They're going to return to these places. Hey, we're a cut-off branch, but he hasn't forgotten us either. Then back to what Isaiah wrote, The house of Israel shall possess them, and the land of the Lord shall be for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives unto whom they were captives, and they shall rule over their oppressors. Now there's the role reversal we so often see in Scripture, where the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, and the underdog becomes the, the champion. Again, we have to be careful with this idea of, well, you took me captive, now I'm going to take you captive. Now, we need to be more humble than that. And again, if there's a sense of conversion taking place, then that would soften that. It's no longer victor and vanquished. It's no longer captor and captive. The former enemies can now become fellow citizens with the saints. That's the hope. Then verse 3 and 4, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall give thee rest, Rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear, from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. That would be incredibly good news for those suffering in Babylonian captivity. And it shall come to pass in that day that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And this proverb, so-called, is the taunt song. This is the shanana hey hey goodbye. This is what they'll say. How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. 
It's like, you're not even here anymore. We are finally free. Verse 5, the Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked, the scepters of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted, and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. There's the millennial peace that we keep hinting at. They break forth into singing. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against us. You get that? No more axes. No more saws. No more instruments boasting in their own strength. No, they've all turned on themselves. And now that the axe has (laughs) chopped itself, Now that the saw has been sawn asunder, we can grow in peace. All of good good thing there was some new some new growth out of those old stumps. There's room for the forest to spread after the forest fire, and it's all coming rushing back. But the taunting continues. Verse nine: Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, and here comes the the strongest part of the taunting song, mocking their former enemies, right? All these people, I mean, hell's opened its doors. All the old dead have come rushing forth. All the old chief ones, the ones that, the dominoes that fell before you, all the little fish you gobbled up are now coming back and they're looking at you and this is what they say, Tauntingly, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Oh, thy pomp is brought down to the grave. The noise of thy vials is not heard. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. This is the worldly kingdom coming crashing down, like all the kingdoms before it. And so you picture these, oh, smaller kind of tributary kings. It had to pay off the Babylonians for, it's like hit the, you know, paying off the mafia. And now the mob boss is in prison right along with all of them. It's like, what were we so afraid of? Look at you. You're nothing. Are you as weak as we are? We thought you were the final fish, the biggest one of them all. And yet you just got swallowed up? Really? Man, I can't believe I was so concerned what people in the Great and Spacious Building thought of me. Because the Great and Spacious Building has finally come crashing down. I can't believe I was so worried about the world's impressions of me. To the point that I would just cave and cower before them and go along with any fashion or fad. Why? Why did I care what you think? When you're nothing yourself, the world has gone its worldly way, and now we're coming to our senses. They say in verse 12 through 14, very famous passage, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. There's the I trouble. 
that we saw back among the Assyrians. The Babylonians are no different. This was all about you, wasn't it? And it was all about self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. And it ends up being all self-deception because you're nothing. All that so-called flesh on your arm has withered away. And you with it. Who does that remind me of? Who am I thinking that also thought he was better than everyone else? Someone else that trusted his own strength, wanted his own glory, wanted to do things his own way, and wanted to keep everyone beholden to him. Oh, you're just like Lucifer. This is exactly like the war in heaven, and now it's just been transferred to a war on earth. But Lucifer fell. What a tragedy. Lucifer, which means light bearer, an angel in authority in the presence of God, someone who could have done so much good, ended up doing so much evil. Assyria, that could have been you. Babylon, that could have been you. Persia, in a way, that was you. Cyrus, you did a good thing. You let us go home and helped us rebuild. Thank you for that. Finally, a world superpower that wasn't so full of itself. But to think about Lucifer as the pre-enactment of this, and then Assyria and Babylon and so many others as a reenactment of all of that. But also, this is one of Isaiah's layer cakes at its finest, because this prophecy, this taunt song, this sense of why were we so scared of you, gets repeated so often. Kingdom after kingdom, empire after empire. So it fits with Lucifer in the war in heaven. It fits with all of the earthly kingdoms as they come and go and fall apart before the next one. But also, think about a final echo since we're aiming at the latter day with all of this. Again, think of Revelation of John. Think of the apocalypse of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or of Armageddon. And as we look at the wicked world and think, you again? You thought, why was I so afraid of you? But also, Lucifer hiding behind that wicked world. He proclaiming himself as the god of this world. The prince of the powers of the air. Thinking he ran the show. And once again, go back to Revelation. What will come of the devil when all is said and done? Cast into the bottomless pit, locked in place, bound in chains for the thousand years of millennial peace, only to be loosened for a little season and then cast off permanently. It's interesting because it's all coming full circle. And just like Lucifer was cast out of God's presence in premortality, he will be cast out of the Lord's presence during the millennial reign. And once again, it's, this song is on repeat. And once again, we'll hear the shanana shanana. But then again, it won't be out of our own pride. Don't forget that the heavens wept over the loss of Lucifer. And we have to be at a point where we love our enemies until they're no longer enemies. And we no longer rejoice in their defeat. We mourn over their loss. Okay? We have to have thick skin against them, but soft hearts for them. And that's a tough combination. But that's what the Lord's calling us to become. Okay? Lucifer, you've fallen. It, you're, it's, the story's over. We can now rejoice in the freedom that comes from God.
And so, Isaiah then says, verse 15, the song continues, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell. You thought you were going to ascend up to heaven. Instead, you are brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and shall consider thee. It's like they're staring at you like, wait, is this the guy? That's what they'll say. Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? that did shake kingdoms and made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof and opened not the house of his prisoners. Is that really you? You think about old oh, footage when Saddam Hussein was discovered, when Osama bin Laden was discovered also. And these people that had wrought so much havoc, that had caused so much fear through their terrorism and their tyranny. And then they're like hiding in a hole somewhere? Captured by the special ops? The lowered, brought down to hell? And it's like, you were the one we were so worried about? You're a mere mortal just like the rest of us. Why were we so afraid? And to see that, when we look at Lucifer and the wicked world and how to overcome it. Our oppressors seem to put their pants on one leg at a time just like everyone else. Why did we take them so seriously? The way he says it in verse 18 and 19, all the kings of the nations, yea, all of them, lie in glory, every one of them in his own house. But thou, oh, thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch. We've seen some good branches growing out of dead stumps. But you, no, you've been cast out like an abominable branch. As the remnant of those that are slain, there's a play on remnant too, thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. Oh, remember the ignominious death that Nehor suffered in Alma chapter 1? Oh, warriors, especially in the past, cared so much about having a noble death, a good death. I died in glory. And now my reputation will be passed down to posterity in glowing terms. They will sing of my heroic exploits. And yet here, oh no, it's a different kind of song. It's a taunting one. You've been cast out. You're not even buried well. Where are your bones? In verse 20 and 21, Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Again, there's a denial of the good death. So prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. They are cut off entirely and permanently. End of Babylon. So 22, I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and son and nephew, saith the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the bittern. That has been translated by, uh, as anything from owls to hedgehogs to porcupines. I don't even know what that bittern is, but that's some weird little animals that are scur scurrying around. That's all that's left of this ghost town that once housed the hanging gardens. Now, pools of water, which could also be translated marshes or swampland, even better. I will sweep it with the besom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. 
or the, the broom of despair, you could say. You ever been to a, or, or seen like in the NBA when it's a best of seven series? And if one team has won the first three games handily, often their fans will come up, to, will show up to the fourth game with brooms in hand. Just a way to taunt the other team to say, you're about to get swept. And here, the besom of destruction, he's going to use to sweep it of the dust and the mire. And Babylon has not only been brought to its knees, but laid low in the dirt till there's nothing left. In verse 24, he says, The Lord of hosts, there's armies again, hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. There's strong language there. I've done exactly what I promised to do. It's like, so let it be written, so let it be done. I've said it, I've purposed it, I've planned it, and it shall come to pass. It shall stand. That I will bring the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. Do you not remember what happened to the Assyrians? You're the ones that defeated them. Well, you Babylonians will eventually be defeated yourselves. So... You'll know what it feels like. How's this for enforced empathy for people who never felt empathy of their own? So 26, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out upon all nations, this hand of justice. Could have been the hand of mercy. You could have grabbed that one instead. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Maybe that's what Joseph meant when he talked about the man's puny arm sticking it out into the mighty Missouri River and trying to turn it back up course. No, no human hand is going to be able to do that. And so you mighty hand of the Babylonians, oh, not so mighty after all. God's hand is the strong one. And you'll be able to do nothing to fight what God is trying to do to redeem his people. He gets close to the end of the chapter here, verse 28 through 30. In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. Now rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. So this is where it gets interesting. If they've been taunting him this whole time, this is where Isaiah, or Isaiah's God, that is, warns them, cautions them. Slow down. Be, don't be too... Oh, eager to dance upon their grave. Don't rejoice over these things just because that Babylonian rod has been broken. Because notice what's coming. Out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill thy root with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant." Wait, what are you saying? Don't get too excited. Well, don't get too excited that Assyria has been destroyed because Babylon's waiting in the wings. Don't be too excited that Babylon's been destroyed because you'll still, I mean, the Persians will be nicer to you, but you're still a conquered people. Now, once the Persians are gone, yeah, the Greeks will then come to control things. And once the Greeks are gone, well, just wait. The Romans are on their way. And the, the fish just keep getting bigger and bigger until we finally decide to trust in our God.
fully follow him and allow him to overcome the kingdoms of this world until they become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. It won't be until the millennial reign when the Prince of Peace is here that children can finally play at the cockatrice den. Until then, out of that den will come forth another cockatrice. So be careful. In fact, speaking of serpents, how about the fiery flying ones? And what, talk about a beautiful hint that Isaiah just left us. Because those people that were bitten by the fiery flying serpents during their exodus years of wander, wander, die, wander, die, all you had to do was look and live. And that's Isaiah's message. That's Nephi's message. If we will simply look to the God of Israel and come unto him, no fear from the fiery flying serpents. We can begin lying down in peace because we finally accepted the Prince of Peace into our lives. With that, Isaiah can finish this chapter, this burden to Babylon. And with that, Nephi can finish quoting this incredible chunk of Isaiah chapters. He can say in verse 31 and 32, Howl, O gate, cry, O city, thou whole Palestina art dissolved. For there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. What shall then answer the messengers of the nations? That the Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. That's what all of this will eventually come to. A realization on our part, but also on the whole world's part, that the Lord hath founded Zion. That's why Zion always seems to rise from its own ashes. Phoenix-like, this must be the kingdom of God. It, you can't put it down forever. The scattered will be gathered. The wicked will be remembered. Repentance will be preached. And eventually, someday, that righteous remnant will gather a godly people back to its land of inheritance. God reigneth. The Lord hath founded Zion, even the poor of the people, with no flesh on their arm in which to trust, will have a God in whom they can fully trust, and God will come through for them. Oh, my people, you Nephites, worried what will become of you in the face of the Lamanite threat? You sensitive souls like my sweet younger brother Jacob, wondering about where you'll be, having been scattered and cut off from a land of inheritance that you never even lived in. Oh, God hath founded Zion. And he who built that foundation will eventually return as his chief architect to place himself as its capstone and rule over the kingdoms of this world. Nephi is counting on that. He's seen it in vision, remember? That was 1 Nephi 11, 12, 13, 14. He's, he knows it will all end in good news. He just knows that there's a lot of things to suffer and struggle through on the way. But if we can, if we can rally this righteous remnant, if we can get a people prepared to receive their God, then it's only a matter of time that that leaven will leaven the lump. That's what Nephi is banking on. He is putting his eggs in a latter-day basket, granted, right? 
Seal up the, the law. Bind up the testimony. Isaiah, write this down because your vocal words will just continue to harden hearts. It's not going to have a good short-term effect. But long-term, when a day comes where a righteous remnant is reminded through your words of who they are, oh, look out. All the good things will start to come to pass. And Isaiah wrote it to make sure that would happen. Nephi quoted it to make sure that would happen. Joseph Smith translated it to make sure that would happen. President Nelson is reminding us of the Abrahamic covenant and the role that we'll play to gather Israel to make sure that it all happens. We are living in the day of fulfillment of all of these things. I just hope that we're living up to divine expectation.